began a new series last week. It's just a little six-week series, mini-series if you like, and uh, it's entitled Stories of Change. And the subtitle there, you can see the, important of, the importance of Christian conversion. What we're essentially thinking about in this little series uh, are, are about people who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus. They've become a Christian. They've been converted. That's what we mean by the word conversion. Uh, we started last week, so you can listen to that online if you, if you didn't hear it. But um, we're, we're essentially in the book of Acts. More about that in a moment. And over the next five weeks, we're going to think about five individuals in this book of Acts who became Christians. The first story, Ewan's just read to us, uh, part of it, is a very surprising one because it involves an African man who is a total religious outsider. And he makes a 2,000-mile round-trip journey. It took him probably 10 months. Don't know whether his chariot was supercharged, but it took five months there, five months back, so I, so I understand. He, he went to the capital city, Jerusalem, looking for God and didn't find him there. And on the way home, God found him. So there's, a, there's an irony in that. So this, this we don't know his name. Uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, describes him as an Ethiopian eunuch. So we'll try and unpack some of this. As we focus on the importance of this idea of Christian conversion, there are, I, I suppose my, my angle today, if you like, if you've got one of the programs, you can see there's three points to our talk today. Um, I, I'm essentially coming at this from the angle of that there's, there's lots of things in this story, but there are three key things that contribute to this man coming to faith in Jesus. There are three things that contribute or cause his conversion to happen. And uh, you can see the, the headings there. First of all, God's loving concern to reach people from all the nations of the world. I've called that the powerful impetus of the Spirit. When, when I use the word impetus, I'm talking about centrifugal force, you know. And I, I never know the physics of this. I've forgotten all I know about engineering. I've said this to you before. I think that's the one that goes outwards, isn't it? This, that's what I mean by impetus. Some of the engineers are nodding at me. Thank you very much. The, the powerful, I, I, I want us to get this idea that God is an outward-looking God. He's not static. He's, he's, he's on the hunt, and he's looking for people. He's seeking people. He's searching people from all the nations of the world. That's the powerful impetus of the Spirit. Secondly, the humble passion of the seeker. This guy has a serious, almost desperate longing to know God. There's no apathy here. And that contributes to his conversion. And lastly, thirdly, the penny finally seems to drop when this man, for the first time in his life, sees suddenly and joyfully, profoundly, he sees who Jesus really is and what Christ has done for him. So I've called that the ironic suffering of the Savior. So there's three points. Oh, we've run out of time now, so <laughs> no, we haven't really too long an introduction so first of all the powerful impetus of the spirit let's have a look at this Here, here's my point you can see it in this passage the this ethiopian man would never have become a christian he would never have been converted if god had not sent another man called philip to meet him on the road in the middle of the desert and this man wouldn't have become a Christian if Philip wasn't willing to go to that road and talk to this man in his chariot. So look with me in verse 26. We're not going to get into like the beings and art of angels here, but in verse 26, we're told an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, later on in verse 29, we don't know how, the spirit prompts Philip, go to that chariot, mate and stay near it and he does right at the end um, when this brief encounter is over and this man has become a Christian 
we're told that the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and this Ethiopian eunuch didn't see him again but went on his way rejoicing. We'll come back to that as well. But the, the, what Luke's underlining for us is that all the way through the story, there's a divine initiative. The spirit is prompting, leading, guiding, arranging even the details of the circumstances to make this encounter possible so that this man will come to faith in Jesus. But, but this story fits into a broader story in the book of Acts about God being at work. Um, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, you, you might know there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book after that is the book of Acts. And it actually, the Gospels are in the wrong order because the book of Acts is like part two of the Gospel that Luke wrote. The same guy who wrote Luke, he was a doctor, also wrote the book of Acts. So I have no idea why it's not Matthew, Mark, John, and then Luke and Acts. That would be much more sensible. But Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And the story of Acts is really the story of the early church. Let, let me just read um, a quote to you. Um, this is a guy called Michael Green, and um, he writes quite exuberantly. This is what he says. Three decades in world history. That's all it took. In the years between 33 AD and 64 AD, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than two billion adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all of this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. We have some hints as to how this took place, from scattered allusions in the letters in the New Testament, several, several of them written during these same 30 lyrical years. But there's only one connected account of this astonishing volcanic eruption of the Christian faith. And that is contained in the book of Acts. And we're reading the book of Acts here. Why is it called the book of Acts? The, the, the word act, it's short for the Acts of the Apostles. I think that's the wrong name, really, because it should be called the Acts of God's Spirit. Uh, obviously, the apostles do things. But the powerful impetus, the outward-looking drive behind this three-decade explosion is, is essentially the Spirit of God. What, one of the reasons I think we can know that is that even though Jesus told his followers to go and love people from all the nations of the world they didn't do it they stayed at home in Jerusalem it's almost as if the first Christians would have never have done what Jesus told them to do unless the spirit was the impetus it's like the spirit keeps prodding them and reminding them and moving them that the impetus the power is coming from the Spirit. This isn't a group of people who were trying to impose their ideas on another culture. It, they, they, they didn't really want to go, it seems. It, it's not very flattering, but the book of Acts wouldn't be the book of Acts if it wasn't for this impetus of the Spirit. So, up to chapter 7 in the book of Acts, the early church has exclusively been based in Jerusalem. And so far, Luke has only told us about mass conversions. On the day of Pentecost, six weeks after the resurrection, 3,000 people became followers of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 41. We're then told that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Chapter 2, verse 47. A little later, Luke says... 
that many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Chapter 4, verse 4. And this, this growth isn't happening in a culture that's friendly. This growth is happening in a culture that is at least as resistant to the Christian message that ours is. This, this is phenomenal traction. There was persecution, there were social challenges, but in chapter 6 of the book of Acts, Luke tells us again that the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Chapter 6, verse 7. But after all these mass conversions at home in Jerusalem, when we reach the second half of chapter 8 that Ewan read to us, Luke slows the pace right down, and for the first time we begin to see individual stories of people coming to faith, not just crowds of nameless people, but individuals. The first is this African man. The second is a Jewish man who brutally persecuted Christians. We're going to hear about him next week. And the third in chapter 10 is a European, a Roman centurion. These three, so we've seen mass conversions, thousands of people coming to faith. Now we're going to see three individuals, this man, a Jewish man, and then a European man. At the start of our service, we read this verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. These are the words of Jesus to his disciples. And this, this is the impetus. Jesus said to his disciples, you can hear his heart here. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you, this little band, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's, that, that's Jesus' almost final words to his disciples. Jesus is telling them to go, and what happened was that they stayed pretty much at home in Jerusalem. I came across a run writer who said quite humorously, Unfortunately, every place Christian leaders were being called to open their arms to someone of a different race or a different culture, God had to practically beat them over the head with the Holy Spirit. That, that's how it was in the book of Acts. Every time they were called to go, God has to like beat them over the head with the Holy Spirit to, to give them the impetus to go. The Spirit is moving outwards. It seems like even the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they're constantly playing catch-up with God's plans. Often they felt that things were out of their control. The first thing that happens, perhaps we should have read it actually, if you keep your finger on the page here, because we'll refer to some of these verses. At the beginning of chapter 8, there's a Christian called Stephen who's been stoned, he's stoned to death. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So it's like they've stayed at home, a persecution breaks out. It, it's almost like God uses the persecution to kind of drive them to do what he told them to do in the first place. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And a man called Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And then we read in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So this man, Philip, goes down to a city in Samaria and he begins to do what Jesus had told them to do in the first place. But it's the persecution that causes it. Samaria is an interesting place as well. One of the reasons that they didn't go there was because the Jewish people who lived there were considered impure. Um, they'd intermarried with other races. They were kind of half Jews, and the pure Jews kind of looked down on the mixed race Jews. So if you were a pure, if you were a pure Jew, some Jews wouldn't go through Samaria. They'd walk around it because they didn't want to get the dust of Samaria on their feet. Philip ends up in Samaria. And he preaches the good news. People respond in great numbers, as they have in Jerusalem. 
and we're told in verse 8 that there was great joy in that city. The gospel is spreading. We'll see, this is, this is the place from where God sends Philip to meet this Ethiopian eunuch guy. Now, around the first century, Ethiopia, it's not quite the Ethiopia we know today. Uh, it was known as the Kingdom of Nubia. So it, it, this kingdom lasted for over a thousand years. It's slightly further south than where we would say Ethiopia is now, mainly in Sudan, uh, in the north of Africa. And the ancient Greeks and, and Romans were fascinated by this area of North Africa. The, the Romans sent at least two expeditions, one before Christ, I think one just after Christ, to try and find the source of the River Nile. And they were fascinated. And I, I've, I've come across, just researching this, I, I didn't know this, there's half a dozen writers, Homer is one of them, Greek writer, who call Ethiopia the furthest end of the earth. Get that? The furthest end of the earth, that's what they call it, more than one of them. So this man comes from the very end of the earth to Jerusalem and the Spirit arranges Philip to meet him so that he's converted. To them, it seemed that if you went south, you would go through Ethiopia, you'd eventually hit the ocean, and then you'd like fall off the end. This was literally, this for them was like going to the moon. What did Jesus say? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. To this generation, that was like, Ethiopia was like as far as you could go. It's incredible that this guy is part of this story. I also think that Philip's obedience here to the prompting of God's Spirit is very striking. Philip started out in chapter 6, actually, serving by waiting on tables. Persecution comes, he goes to Samaria, and he finds himself, he's not one of the apostles, that, if you like, Philip's like an ordinary Christian guy, but he finds himself in the middle of this massive revival. People are coming to faith in Jesus. The city's stirred. He's a busy guy. The church is growing. It must have been one of the most exciting times in his life. What on earth is going on? This is amazing. Even the Samaritans are coming to faith in Jesus. And then an angel appears to him and says, go south. Go to a road in the desert and wait there. And Philip must have thought, what? Lord, do you know what you're doing? Are you sure? You want me to leave this thriving, exciting city ministry and go and stand in a lonely desert and preach to the lizards? This is like over 50 miles south. It is very striking that he goes. And when he gets there, God says, here's your new congregation, mate. One guy. Go and talk to him. I, I don't know if Philip struggles with like being popular or being some kind of celebrity pastor. This, it, here's your congregation, Philip, one guy. I think one of the strong points in Acts that we're meant to get is that God loves people from all the nations and cultures of this world. And what that specifically means <coughs> is that God wants you and I to love people who are not like us. It is quite easy to love the people who are like us. It's not that normal to cross cultural, racial, ethnic divides and love people who are not like us. And even when we do, it's not that normal to do it well. Are we obedient to God like Philip was? Are we willing to go outside of our comfort zone? 
are we sensitive even to the prompting and leading of God's Spirit? Are we sensitive to the needs of the people around us or so preoccupied with what's happening in our little patch that we're not aware of others? Are we alert in our lives even to the mundane little details? You know, go and stand on this rut. It's like the little details in this story matter. Are we alert to what God might be doing, even in the small details of our lives? And do we really love people like God loves them? Or, or, or do, do we look down on people who are not like us? As if we're superior in some way. <coughs> I also think Philip here is a great model of how to do evangelism sensitively what does he do he asks questions he listens well he starts where the guy is not where he'd like him to be he roots things in the bible he points the guy to jesus this is not philip imposing his culture on a man from another culture this isn't colonial oppression He's not trying to make the guy like him. This is about the Spirit of God changing his heart, not demolishing his African culture. He's very sensitive in the way he speaks to this man. You may well know in, in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, we get a glimpse of the end game. And we see there in John's vision a great crowd that no one could count a multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, all praising Jesus. We read of the tree of life being there, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Don't we need that? And here in this story, we see a Jewish man put his arm around an African man and call him brother. So there's the first thing. The first thing that contributes to this man's conversion is the powerful, outward-looking, centrifugal impetus of the Spirit of God who loves people from all the nations of the world. And the obedience of his followers eventually when prompted and stirred to go and do what Christ told them to do. The second thing that contributes, I think, to this man becoming a real Christian, being converted, is his own attitude. Might seem a strange thing to say. Maybe there's someone here and you've come and you're curious about God. Maybe seek him, I don't know. If you feel anything like those kind of things, just look with me at how this Ethiopian man is the very model of what a seeker should be. So secondly, the humble passion of the seeker. We don't know the name of this guy, but Luke tells us enough for us to build up a picture. First of all, I want to know that this is a powerful man yet a humble one. There we go, it appears as if by magic. The kingdom of Ethiopia that this man comes from, as, as we said, lasted for over a thousand years apparently. And this guy is a top bod in that kingdom. We, are, we have some financial people uh, in, in our congregation. This guy was a finance man, the chancellor of the exchequer, this kingdom had the view, apparently, that the king was basically a demigod figure to be worshipped, and he wasn't allowed to get his hands dirty with the mundane affairs of politics. So the real boss who ran the country was the queen mother. And the title that's given here of Kandeki or Candace in some versions is, is essentially a, a, a 
a dynastic title for the Queen Mother. This is not a personal name. This was the title given to the Queen Mum. So this Ethiopian eunuch reports to his lady boss, the Queen Mum. And he, he's in charge of the treasury. This is, this guy is an influential guy. We shouldn't underestimate the fact as well that as he sits in his chariot, he's reading. That in itself should strike us. In this first century culture, that, that wasn't necessarily common. He's reading. This, this is a guy who has a good education. He's an intelligent guy. And he also has some wealth at his disposal because he's reading from scrolls, essentially the book of Isaiah. What, what, what he's done in Jerusalem is purchased scrolls of the book of Isaiah. These were handwritten. They weren't cheap. They weren't easy to come by. This guy is a wealthy guy and he's purchased scrolls that he's then reading. I say all this because when some sweaty guy you don't know runs up to your chariot and says hello and then says do you understand what you're reading I, I think you could perhaps forgive this guy for saying get lost mate do you not know who I am who are you you don't even look like you've got a chariot it, you, you got the point. I, I think what's really striking here is this guy's humility, isn't it? It, it? Almost his vulnerability, his answer is utterly gracious. Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And he invited Philip, the sweaty guy who he didn't know, up into his chariot to sit next to him. If, if you're curious about Jesus, learn from this guy that you can't do it on your own. Don't we live in a culture, this is the air we breathe, isn't it? I'll do it my way. I can do it. I can do it. I don't need any help. We're, we're the kind of guys, if we were in the chat, we'd say, get lost, I'll figure it out on my own, thank you, even if it takes me 10 years. But this guy, so that, that's just bog-standard pride, isn't it? He doesn't say, thank you very much, I'll figure it out on my own. Despite his cleverness, his status, his education, his wealth, his power even, he knew he needed help, and when it came... He had the humility to acknowledge his need and accept it. He didn't try and do it all on his own. He needed a guide, a mentor. And the amazing thing is that God knows what he needs and arranges for Philip to be there at that exact moment. If you're seeking, don't be afraid to ask for help. If you're here today because you're seeking, we're glad that you're here. Talk to Christian friends, ask questions. But I think we can see this guy's humble passion in some other ways here as well. I think his desire is desperate. Let, let me just open this up a little. I think we could describe this man as a successful man yet hungry I want to say two things here and the first is that th this is a man who had paid a high price to get to the top of the tree and when he got there he discovered that it wasn't enough we've highlighted this man's excellent career but we're also told that he was a eunuch. This was not uncommon in the ancient world. If, if a man was to look after the king's harem, or he had access to female members of the royal family, or he worked for the queen mum, it would often be a requirement that he would have to be castrated. 
then it would be guaranteed that he would be loyal and trustworthy and wouldn't be trying it on with any of the female members of the household. Apparently, I, I didn't know this, apparently in some ancient cultures, the word for prime minister is the same word for the, for the word eunuch. So these things became so synonymous that if you, if you wanted to get to the top, you would pay a high price. I, there's, a joke in, there's a joke here somewhere. <laughs> Maybe you're ahead of me. This, this is, you, you would call this putting your balls on the line to coin a phrase, okay? You all think of it. This guy pays the price to get to the top. I was struck by an insight from Tim Keller on this that our culture isn't that different. We don't generally ask employees or public servants to be castrated in order to be loyal. But isn't it the case that we do require, we, we, we are often required to pay a high price to get to the top. We neglect our families. We lose relationships. We make sacrifices. We, we, we do, in a sense, put our balls on the line. Men and women, it's a phrase, it's a metaphor. We, we, we think that when we get to the top, we'll be happy and we pay a high price to get there. We think we'll be fulfilled. This man did, and when he got to the top, he realized it wasn't enough. How do we know? Because he jumps in his chariot and undertakes a journey that, as we've already said, would have taken him 10 months to complete. Surely his colleagues must have said, are the Ethiopian gods not enough? What else do you need? What is missing in your life to make you want to leave your job for the best part of a year and go on such a wild goose chase? It, something's missing. <laughs> That's what, you get a sense of this guy's hunger. But it was worse in this guy's case because secondly, he traveled a very long way only to get shut out. When he got to Jerusalem, he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple because of his castration. This operation would have caused a physical deformity that excluded him from worship. And it is possible that Temple of Fit, there's no light, he didn't have a mark on his head saying, I've been castrated. But because he was a political official, I think that would have been enough evidence for the officials in Jerusalem to ask him if he was a eunuch. And if he was, he wouldn't be allowed in. So as this man travels all of this way to the capital city, searching for God and gets there, and the door slams in his face. And as he pleads, please let me in, both his ethnicity and his sexual status mean he's outside. He searched for God and the door slams shut. You can't come in. Can you sense now how poignant his journey home is? Despite his success and all the trappings of wealth and power and influence, this man is empty and needy and excluded. In Jerusalem, presumably, he's bought scrolls and he's pouring over them on the way home. He's looking for answers. He's desperate to find the meaning and purpose and satisfaction he craves. This is a man who's searching for God. And first of all, what seems to be clear in his hunger, in his disappointment, is that somehow he senses that the answer to his search lies in the Scriptures. This is the Word of God. He, he doesn't know it fully yet, but he senses the truth is in here somewhere. I can't quite find it, but I can sense that this is where I've got a dick. And he, he, so he buys scrolls, he pays a few quid. That, that is a good instinct. 
He's not trying to guess here or make something up. He's grappling with the truth of God's word. He doesn't know it yet. He's unsettled. He's disappointed. But he knows where to dig. He, he reminds me of something I read about a very famous guy in church history. You, you might know the name Martin Luther. In the 1500s, prior to the Reformation in Europe, he was a monk, but he was deeply sad and troubled in his conscience. And he read a verse in the book of Romans in the New Testament that talked about the righteousness of God. And in his heart, he knew, even as a monk, that he wasn't righteous. It frightened him. And he said this, this, this is his words, he, he wrote down his experience. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience and I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly I was angry with him. This is a monk and he's, he, I, I realized I, I, the, I can't, I, I'm not righteous and God requires it. I hate him. This is a monk. And as he struggles, he says this, nevertheless, these are old words. He, he said, I beat importunately upon Paul, who wrote Romans. I looked that word up in a dictionary because I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> I beat persistently, avidly, hungrily, demandingly upon Paul in Romans, most ardently desiring to know what he meant. And at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, and he began to realize by God's grace that when God spoke of this righteousness, he, he wasn't thinking of something that Martin Luther had to aspire to that he couldn't. It was a gift from God through Jesus, by faith. And listen what he said. When that penny dropped, he said, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Do, why do I tell in, in other words, he wouldn't let go of the scriptures. He didn't understand it at first, but he wrestled with it. He agonized with it. He was honest with it until the penny dropped and he saw God's grace and it melted his heart. It removed all of his anger. <laughs> he was a man, he had his flaws. But it, yeah, Europe was transformed. Do you know one of the things that is so profoundly sad about our modern culture is the apathy towards the things of God. There's no other word for it. Apathy. This man was hungry, desperate. Some of you might even catch this disease. Some of you even have grown up surrounded by family who believe and love Jesus. And it doesn't move you or cause you to be like this man. We should be ashamed of our apathy. We can learn a lot from this man in terms of the energy and seriousness and passion that he has when he seeks God. He means business. His humble willingness to receive help, to lose his pride, to be vulnerable. And isn't it incredible that as this man is so desperately searching for God, that all the time, the God he's searching for has actually been searching for him. So these two things combine. As God arranges the details for these two men to meet on the desert road, it's like high noon. 
This is the moment this man's whole life has been building up to. And what happens here is that he finds the real Jesus. So, last point, the ironic suffering of the Saviour. First of all, I think one of the reasons this guy might have bought scrolls of Isaiah rather than some other scroll, I mean, he might have bought a full set, who knows, he was a wealthy guy. Just turn back with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. I'll try and give you a page number. Isaiah 56. So page 744, if you're in one of the church Bibles. Maybe this guy, in his searching, his grappling, came across this passage in the scroll. Who knows? Isaiah 56, verse 3. This is 700 years before Christ. Isaiah writes, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. The sons and daughters they couldn't have. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. I I wonder whether this guy is pouring over Isaiah because he has a little sense, you know, there might be some hope. When he reads that and he thinks, wow, they wouldn't let me in, but here in the scroll it says, it talks of eunuchs being within the temple and its walls and having an everlasting name that's even better than offering. When Philip goes near the chariot, he's reading out loud, but he's reading from chapter 53. And uh, Luke records for us what he's reading. This is the verse 32. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants? For his life was cut off, taken from the earth. So this guy's in his chariot and he's reading about someone who is innocent and who suffers silently and he's like, who would do this? In what generation, in what place would this kind of injustice happen? Such brokenness, such unfairness, such trauma, such disappointment. And as he's reading, he's thinking, this man sounds like me. Who can speak of my descendants? The price he's paid to get to the top, the fact that he can't get into the temple. This guy's never going to have any offspring or children in a culture that prided itself on that. This guy sounds like me, but this guy sounds like he's doing it voluntarily. It's a supremely relevant scripture. But secondly, he asks the most important question. The eunuch asks Philip, tell me please, oh sweaty one, (laughs) tell me please, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Is it himself or is it somebody else? That, friends, is the most important question you can ask. Who is he? Who is it? Who is this? This is the pivotal moment of this man's life. And isn't it interesting, as he is grappling with the question, who am I? What is my life about? At the same time, he's asking the most important question, who's this? At the same time, he's thinking, who am I? Who is this? He's beginning to see that his story, with all of its dilemma and trauma and brokenness, 
and disappointment is somehow bound up in another story, this story, this person. Who is it? Who's the prophet talking about? Is it himself? Is it someone else? Who is he? And so comes one of the most beautiful verses in the whole of the Bible. Verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and he told him the good news about Jesus. The one who suffered in silence here is Jesus. And he did it all for you. The Greek word for good news is the word that we get the word gospel from. And literally, this verse says that Philip opened his mouth and gospeled the man. I'm reminded of the old adverts where someone would like get tangled. You've been tangled. This Ethiopian eunuch, it's like, you've been gospeled, mate. The good news of Jesus, you've been tangled, you've been gospeled. It's Jesus. But it's the irony that's emphasized here. This tragic, unjust death, which looked like everything was lost, in fact resulted in everything being gained. It looked like the end. In fact, it was the beginning. The one who was cut off like a eunuch. The one who looked like he would have no descendants ended up giving birth to millions of sinful human beings. 700 years later, God's son, the Lord Jesus, is in Jerusalem. They shut him out of the temple. They take him outside the city with a cross and a wicked world. They shout, crucify him, crucify him. And they did. But his father said, he's mine. And he vindicated him by raising him from the dead. This Christ was offered up as a willing substitute to stand in our place and bear all of our sin and brokenness so that we could be forgiven and made new. The bad news is transformed into good news, everlasting good news. Jesus dies the death we deserve so that we can know his love. He rose again, ascended to his throne in glory, reigning over all, and all those who trust in him are caught up in his eternal story. This is the moment when this man realizes my search is over. He's found the answer to his brokenness in a broken Christ. Christ was cut off so that this man could be brought in. And look at the result. The man asked Philip to baptize him. There's a lot of poignancy in his question. Is there any reason why I can't be baptized? He's almost still thinking, you know, I might, get, I might still get the door slammed in my face. He's almost saying, look at me. Is it okay? I'm trusting Christ. Can I be baptized? And they get, he orders the chariot to stop. They get down in the water. He baptizes him. Philip seems to disappear from view. And Luke says, this man went on his way rejoicing. I love the image of this man's chariot galloping back to Africa with the joy of Christ in his heart. We're done. In this first conversion in the book of Acts, isn't it amazing? The first man to be converted in the book of Acts. It's not a European. That'll come later. An African man goes home with Jesus in his heart. This man was converted because of the powerful impetus of the Spirit of God, so arranging things to draw outsiders to himself. He was converted because of his humility and openness and willingness and passion to search the scriptures, talk with others. 
And he was converted in the end because the penny dropped for him when he came face to face with the Savior who suffered and died and rose again to bring him into a new relationship with God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for... We thank you so much for these times when we can just dig into your word. Um, thank you. Thank you for this man. We don't know his name. Father, we thank you that you love people from all the nations of the earth. Father, thank you that that means that you love people in Rotherham in 2019. Father, we pray that all of us might know and, and see and savor and treasure something of the Lord Jesus, your son, our savior. Thank you for his willingness to come to die in agony so that we could be reconciled to you. Thank you for forgiveness, new life, conversion. Father, for those of us who are believers, those of us who are followers of Christ, help us to learn something from Philip. We pray that you would help us not to be selfish, asleep. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be open to the prompting of your spirit. Help us to love other people like you do. May you help us to fulfill our calling to go into all the world, to go into Rotherham, to go into our neighbors and friends and sensitively share something of the love of Christ. Stare us as individuals, stare us as a church. Help us to be on mission. Help us to be, yeah, help us to know the impetus of your spirit, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.